There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. Three, two, one, boosters in ignition. And liftoff of Artemis One. We rise together back to the moon and beyond. That is the powerful sound of Artemis One launching from NASA's Kennedy Space Center in Florida. The unmanned rocket successfully flew to and around the moon last November, a path Artemis II will follow. But this time, four astronauts will be on board marking the first time NASA has taken people to the moon's orbit in over 50 years. Artemis II Commander Reed Wiseman will lead this crew on this historic mission set for mid-November 2024. The Baltimore native comes on the show to tell us about this mission to the moon and why he wants to make the impossible real. Artemis II NASA Commander Reed Wiseman, welcome to the DMV Download Podcast. Thank you. It's great to be with you. So last night, the skies were clear, and I caught myself looking at the moon, took out my binoculars, and I just saw this shining orb in the sky. And I kind of felt connected to, you know, humans throughout history who have looked up at the moon and just been inspired. And you get to go there or go around it. You know, first off, how does that feel? I love the way you opened that. I think about that all the time. Humans, since the dawn of intelligent thought, have looked at the moon and wonder. Uh, I think the thing that my crew, Victor Glover, Christina Cook, Jeremy Hansen, and I are most excited about is working together, moving the needle a little bit. But we always talk about when we're on the far side of the moon, looking back through the moon at Earth and taking that gaze that only 24 people have ever seen in, in history and kind of looking at it from the opposite direction and knowing that that is Earth, that is our home planet. And we will have that same wonder as we look back at Earth as Earthlings do when they look out at the moon. Mm. Is it fair to say this is kind of a dream come true mission for you? Have you always thought about this? When I was a kid, I wanted to be a train engineer. I wanted to drive trains. <laughs> uh, and then I got into uh, airplanes and I wanted to be a pilot. And then when I was a pilot, I thought about being an astronaut. So it was kind of just a stepping stone approach. Mm. Did I ever think I would climb aboard a NASA rocket headed to the moon? Absolutely not. That was not in my wildest imagination. Mm. You know, we talked about the kind of the personal feelings of traveling, you know, to the other side of the moon, but let's talk about kind of the broader societal, you know, species value of this Artemis II mission. You know, how consequential is this Artemis II mission? I look at Artemis II as, as a absolutely tiny step in the broader Artemis architecture that NASA has generated. We've set the strategy that we would like to see humans on Mars. And I guess in the way you ask that question, the first time someone looked across the Atlantic Ocean and said, I'm going to sail across that and see what's on the other side. Mm. Everybody thought they were crazy. And now we jump on an airplane and in a few hours we're across the Atlantic and it just seems totally normal. No one would ever question that. And so I think by setting the strategy of putting humans on Mars, of really seeing humans working on another planet, you start to make the impossible very, very real and tangible. And for those of us who aren't, you know, astronauts and astrophysicists, tell us why the moon is such a key step in getting to Mars. You know, why is that? The moon is our closest neighbor. There, Not only is the moon a great place for us to go learn how to live and work off of our planet sustainably, responsibly, 
But the moon also is our eighth continent. It is made of the same fabric of Earth. So when we go out to the moon, we can see four billion year old parts of Earth. We can see how was Earth created? How was the moon created? And we can extrapolate that across the solar system. Some of the if not the coldest spot in our entire solar system is on our moon. We have water ice on our moon. There is so much that we can learn about how our solar system was created. How was water delivered to Earth? What did the water look like 4 billion years ago? Because there is 4 billion year old water in frozen samples on the moon. We have so much to learn. Mm. You know, there's a very famous photo taken on Apollo 8 called Earth Rise. You know, it's that picture of the Earth rising over the moon's horizon. And for a lot of people, it evokes kind of this emotion of, wow, our Earth is so beautiful. It's so resourceful. Um, and it's, you know, where we're from. Why travel somewhere else? Why leave this place, you know, waste fuel to go somewhere else? Do you struggle with that question at all as an astronaut? I absolutely do not struggle with that with that at all. And I think one of the greatest points of Apollo 8 was, uh, quote, I think it was Bill Anders, who was an astronaut on that. And he said, we came all this way to study the moon. But what we actually discovered was our planet Earth. And that is so true. When you get to leave Earth and look back at it, I think you learn more about who you are. You learn more about our planet. That one photo from Apollo 8 inspired Earth Day. It inspired an entire environmental consciousness movement on planet Earth. So what we get out of going out and exploring has enormous benefits on Earth. Sometimes it's scientific. Sometimes it's just kind of the human mentality. But we will always benefit from doing great things. Mm. And, you know, you have done some space travel before. Can you give us a slice, you know, of that feeling of what it's like to be, you know, up in space? How different is it? You know, how does it feel? Well, I can be kind of honest. The first four days, I felt very sick because I had never <laughs> floated in my life. And it's hard to eat and it's hard to drink and it's hard to go to the bathroom. Uh, but then after four days, it was just truly magnificent. Uh, you're floating the entire time. Things that are impossible on Earth are easy in space. And then you have the view of your home planet and there's no photo, there's no video that does it justice. Uh, our Earth is absolutely gorgeous. And are you scared at all? I, there are definitely moments when you get scared. Uh, I think just like anybody, the first time you're doing something, you're a little fearful. Leaving our planet on a rocket ship, there is a lot of fuel. Um, it's a very, uh, you know, it's an aggressive act. I feel the liftoff. The clock has started. All right here. But for the most part, I think once you're doing the act, the fear goes away and it's just mission accomplishment that takes over. So every time I've done something like a spacewalk or launching on a on a rocket, uh, it's like two or three days before I get a little nervous. But then mm -hmm. once I get on the vehicle and I start doing the mission, it, it feels totally normal. Kicking the gear. You know, I actually studied physics in college, but I remember, you know, the rocket equation. It was this equation that really, you know, made space travel so difficult, right? Because you have your fuel, which gets you up there, but the fuel is heavy, you know, and it just kind of underlines the point that, you know, rocket science, you know, launching a rocket is still pretty difficult even today, even though we've been doing it, you know, for all these decades. Can you kind of tell us how it's still, you know, a big task to do? Uh, it's still an enormous task to do. I think the thing that's been in the, the public eye so much recently is SpaceX and what they're doing is right. absolutely mind blowing. How they're launching boosters, returning them to Earth, turning them around and launching them again like weeks later. And they're doing it tens of times on each booster. That mm. is revolutionary. So that is changing the equation. But like right. you said, to get to get from planet Earth just to 200 miles up, it takes an enormous amount of propellant. It takes, uh, you know, controlling all of that fuel through rocket engines to get the speed that you need, 17,000 miles an hour to get into low Earth orbit. And that physics is never going to change. Yeah. 
You talked about SpaceX. You know, the privatization of space travel is kind of marking a new era in you know space travel for us humans. How would you characterize this current moment of space travel, and what does it tell us about you know our future? I characterize this this current moment as the golden age in spaceflight. Uh, what NASA did in the 1960s and 70s was amazing. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. In eight years, we we were from low Earth orbit to walking on the moon. I mean, that when you put a national will behind something, you can do anything. And we prove that. Mm. What is happening now, though, with privatization is now uh, the Axiom 2 crew just launched and landed. Uh, right. Axiom is a Houston-based company and a fully private mission to the International Space Station. And we are actually seeing this market develop and open it up. And what that enables is technology changes, what you're seeing from SpaceX, Blue Origin, uh, Virgin Galactic. You're seeing all these new ways to get to space, new ways to take passengers, trying to get the cost down. And that competition, it generates good results. So we are all for it uh, right now. Private citizens can buy their way into suborbital and low Earth orbit. That has never happened in our lifetimes. Uh, it's pretty amazing. I, I love what's going on, and it's allowing NASA to look further out at the moon and Mars and try to continue to accomplish our objectives. Mm, you know, Mars still seems so far out, but just hearing you talk, it kind of sounds like it's, you know, closer. You're hopeful. You know, do you think we'll get to Mars? And if you do, when? I know for certain we will get to Mars. The when part of that, I can't answer because we've been trying to do it for many years. <laughs> right. Uh, but I, I really think when you when you look at what's going on with private space, uh, I think, I mean, 10 to 20 years doesn't seem unreasonable to me. Wow. The moon is two, 250,000 miles to get out to the moon. When I was a kid, that was unimaginably far. Now I'm a year and a half away from going out there. It doesn't seem intangible at all. We're going to go do it. Mm. And so ours will be the same way. All right. So you're a year and a half out. What's left to do? I'm sure there's a, a full list ahead of you. I would say we haven't even begun. Um, <laughs> we, we have a, a solid 18 months of training that we're going to start in the middle of June. And that is when we will come together as a crew, myself, Victor, Christina, and Jeremy. And we will really start learning the nuts and bolts of the Orion spacecraft, the Boeing Space Launch System. Uh, we have Airbus has, has built our service module that will power us out to the moon. Uh, so we have a lot of work to do. Mm. And to that little kid, you know, who's thinking about you know, becoming an astronaut or, you know, anyone who's going into college who's interested in this field, what would you tell them? First, I would tell them to uh, find their passion and attack it. And if, if aerospace is their passion, uh, there's never been a better time in the history of human civilization to get into that field. Uh, whether you become an astronaut or a mission controller or a rocket scientist, a vehicle designer, we need all of those, but we also need school teachers and nurses and doctors and veterinarians. You know, we, there's a large need to help civilization right now. So find your passion uh, and go change the world. Mm. Reed, we wish you the best in your training and we wish you the best on your travels to the moon. Thank you so much. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Coming up after the break, we take a look back at the previous NASA launches with WTOP reporter and anchor Dick Giuliano. Before coming to WTOP, he covered 75 space shuttle launches for both AP and CNN radio. Stick around as Dick really contextualizes this upcoming Artemis II mission. So we just heard from Reed Wiseman, the commander of the Artemis II NASA launch. 
to and around the moon. We now turn to Dick Giuliano, who is a reporter and anchor here at WTOP News, but he also spent years reporting on NASA at launches, you know, for years, if not decades. You know, before we go and talk about Arminus 2, which is coming up, tell us about what you've covered, what you've seen, you know, in the world of aerospace. I have to tell you that my whole orientation to it is uh, how triumphant it is when it's successful and how wonderful when you push the boundaries, but it's also... Uh, a very dangerous, risky business. Right. I mean, that's just sort of uh, imbued in me from my experiences because the Space Shuttle Challenger accident was the seventh launch I covered. Mm. And I was on site at the Kennedy Space Center, standing there. If you're just joining us, the Space Shuttle Challenger has just lifted off the pad and we've had a problem here, a major problem. Uh, We're getting no telemetry, no data back from the shuttle according to what we're hearing from Mission Control. It appeared that uh, something separated. There may have been an explosion. Bob, we see the And I'm looking up uh, 78 seconds after launch and see uh, seven people uh, obliterated, seven Mm. lives, people that I had covered. That's pretty shocking. And then several years later, 2003, I guess it was, when I had moved on to CNN, Mm. I got a call on a Saturday morning that they had lost the Columbia crew. Can you get to Houston? Mm. And then I covered the other NASA uh, disaster. And I'm sorry to sort of bring that up, but those are the assignments that I've had. Right. And uh, it's, a, it's a very risky business. Right. And it's important context, you know, because in the past few years, we've seen, you know, SpaceX, kind of some autonomous rockets go up. But, you know, coming up with Artemis II, you know, human beings, a crew of four are going to be there. First of all, the privatization of space has been a major leap forward, I think, for space exploration. Mm. Uh, But in the end, I think what we're seeing is that the government cannot separate itself and let uh, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos do all the launching. Right. The United States still has a hand in this because, after all, there are security issues involved in space. We have three spacefaring nations right now, the United States, Russia, and now China, are able to crew space missions. So uh, clearly there's a role uh, for the United States in all of this. But I, I mean, I, I guess I'm, I'll be honest with you. I think one of the changes I've seen with privatization, I think there is somewhat of a cavalier attitude mm. about space launching, the way we send William Shatner up for a ride. Right. Uh, and, and this sort of thing. And and I just say I'm, I'm a little humbled by all of that because I, I, I've seen how risky it can be. And I think they appreciate it. I think Elon Musk, I don't think, I know he understands yeah. uh, that when uh, you, 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 uh, you launch someone off the space of the earth with that power, that there's risk involved. Mm. You could lose lives. And that's why I, I salute these astronauts. I mean, I think they're uh, very courageous people. They're very interesting people. And I think you see in the Artemis crew that there are some similarities with, with crews that, that I've seen in the past, I mm. think. Uh, they're not cookie-cutter people, but uh, certainly their, their experience, their, their technical experience, their intelligence, uh, just amazing. Mm. And now, you know, a planet in question is Mars. Before, it was kind of just the moon. The moon was the place to go. Um, that was the mission. It's kind of expanded now. People have talked since the inception of getting to Mars. I mean, it's, it's the closest planet to Earth. Uh, it's the stuff that our science fiction movies were based on right. when we were when we were children, and uh, I think it's long been a goal. I think that there are certainly some hurdles to that, 
But I've never heard anybody at NASA not regard it as a long-term goal. They definitely want to do that, although they certainly have abrogated the moon over these years. I mean, how many decades? We haven't been there since, what, 1972, I want to say. That long. I think 72 was uh, Skylab, uh, which were used all Apollo parts. Right. So, I mean, we got there. Jack Kennedy, the president, uh, set it down as a mission. Of course, that was the space race. We were challenged by Russia, the Soviet Union at the time, and who would be first, who would have the high ground. Mm. And I think that there is a dynamic to all of that with this Artemis mission, uh, especially with the challenges in space of Russia and China. Wow. Wow. Almost a Cold War anew. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. And, you know, when I was talking to Reed, he was saying that, you know, the Artemis mission getting to the moon is essential into getting to Mars. You know, like that's it's really a stepping stone. And, you know, most of what we do and most of what space, all of what space shuttle did Mm. is low Earth orbit. Yeah. So it can be argued that the United States has been locked in low Earth orbit which is about approximately, they're about 300 miles off the surface of the Earth mm. in the International Space Station. Don't get me wrong. I'm not belittling the achievement. <laughs> right. I mean, you're operating in microgravity. It's, it's impressive you can conduct your operations and do what you need to do. And, and by the way, early on in rocketry, they said the hardest thing to do is to just get off the surface of the Earth. Right. So, I mean, that's an achievement in and of itself. But come on. 300 miles above the surface versus going to the moon, 300. It's a whole different ball game. Totally. And only 24 human beings have, you know, seen the Earth on the moon's horizon. You know, it's it's just uh, a limited portion of humanity has ever done that. I, mean, I, could share, I could share some war stories. They're not mine, but I mentioned Howard Benedict earlier. And uh, we covered many a space shuttle mission through the night where we would just sit in the trailer and would chat, and he would tell me some of the experiences he had uh, covering Apollo. And one of the things that that he told me about early on in the moon program was that the the Apollo 8 mission, which was the first to to circle the moon, and uh, from our perspective, from the public's perspective, it was it was dramatic because we heard the astronauts speak after they came around the backside of the moon on Christmas Eve, I believe it mm. was reading from the Bible, you know, about about uh, nature and so forth, and God creating all of this. And from the crew of Apollo 8, we close with good night, good luck, a Merry Christmas, and God bless all of you, all of you on the good earth. And what Howard told me was, there were scientists that were telling NASA at the time that were very concerned about what could happen with the gravitational pull on the backside of the moon. It wasn't a done deal that they would make it all the way around. Or would, oh. or would they go awry and, and go off into space? Or, or would their orbit uh, you know, be warped in a sense that they, they couldn't get back to them? And then, of course, you have a communications blackout when you're on the other side of the moon. Right. So you're not hearing from them uh, for, for minutes. There's radio darkness. Mm. And then when they finally came around... To announce that they were okay and on the, the mission was on, I mean, it was pretty dramatic. Mm. So. Yeah, so you have a trained kind of space reporting eye that you've developed over the years. As we, you know, get towards Artemis II, what should we be looking out for? I think the incredible training that these people go through. I mean, the the training is so intense uh, for these individuals. Mm. 
in the uh, neutral buoyancy tank, which is the huge swimming pool where they, you know, spend endless hours uh, so they can adjust to working simulating, in micro, yeah. simulating microgravity. Uh, and, you know, the other thing about that is the whole team that they will work with, their trainers, are, will be so invested in all of this. There'll be numerous people on the ground at, 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 at Houston who will be working with them uh, to adapt the techniques, the procedures that they will use, not only to get to the moon, but what they're going to do and each step by step, mm. uh, the controllers, the mission controllers, all of that. So, I mean, it's just just an amazing thing. Well, Dick, thanks so much for coming on and you know, sharing your perspective and your years of experience on this uh, topic. Well, it was so nice of you to ask. I appreciate it. It was fun. Thank you. And before we go, I just got to say, I'm such a space geek. I studied physics in college. I'm sure as you could tell with my conversation with Reed, I was just, you know, freaking out at how cool it was to speak to, you know, an astronaut who really is going to go to the moon, you know, if all goes well with this mission. So thanks for sticking around for this conversation. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And that'll do it for us today here on the DMV Download Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And if you have thoughts about this show, let us know. Give us a review on your favorite podcast platform or give us some stars. This show is brought to you by WTOP News. Listen on 103.5 FM in the D.C. area, 107.7 FM in Virginia, and 103.9 FM in Frederick, Maryland. Online at WTOP.com and, of course, on the WTOP News app. Have a great week. We'll talk Wednesday.